Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I am so excited to introduce to you someone who has a very special place in my heart because she brought me into the digital well-being space while I was still a PhD student. So Robin Raskin has really been, I like to refer to her as like a fairy godmother in the industry because she's been around for so long, but she really has got her finger on the pulse of what's happening in the digital space. She is the founder of uh, Living in Digital Times, among many, many other things. Welcome, Robin. And I am your fan also. You know, when you first told me that you could be mindful with your devices, I said, are you kidding? They're the whole reason you have a problem. <laughs> so you taught me a lot. Well, as you know, back then, mindfulness really wasn't part of what we were thinking about with technology. We were just looking at it purely as a distraction tool. And that was one of the things that I was so fascinated in doing the research about was to understand how we could potentially use it as a way to enhance our ability to focus rather than to purely just become a distraction. Now, you've seen so many interesting things happen in changing industry. Maybe you've been behind the scenes in a lot of situations. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your story and how you got involved in technology and where you are now? Yeah, you know, so I think when you were my age, you didn't plan to go into technology. That is, you didn't study it. There was no place to study it. So you sort of were an accidental technologist. My own story was really kind of lame. My husband was an engineer. He brought home a Unix terminal connected to his university, and he told me not to use a typewriter anymore, that he would teach me Unix, VI, NROF. And it was painful. It was so painful. But I realized something important was happening and that this wasn't a hobby like golf or, or tennis. This was something that had the ability to change the world. And here I was, I was a young mom working at home, sending things into a university where he'd bring me printouts. So I wrote, literally, I wrote one story that said how I learned about computers to save our marriage. And the next thing I knew, Bill Ziff, who was starting PC Magazine in New York, called me and said, hey, can you come in? I said, I don't really know anything about technology. He said, you will. <laughs> Nobody knows anything about technology. And But somehow viscerally in my gut, I knew that this was right up there with fire and the wheel and other enabling disruptive things that were going to change all of our lives. I don't think I realized at the time quite how much. Absolutely. I mean, it's so integrated into every fabric of everything that we do now. And sometimes you don't even think of things as being tech. I mean, I hear people talk all the time about how they're not tech savvy, and then they're sort of whipping out their phone and doing five different functions and then doing something else. And they're like, I can't do technology. And I'm like, what do you mean? Because you can't code? Well, they're two different things. I know, but part of the danger, I think, that part part of where we found ourselves is technology is so pervasive and it works everywhere, but nobody's questioning. It's sort of like garbage. You know how nobody knows where garbage comes from or where it goes or what happens to it? The same with technology, only technology is even super more dangerous. So if you don't know what's going on in the background, you 
run the risk of getting in the wrong side of the technology. And it's happened to everybody, even if you do know something, you know, whether you've been spammed or fished or caught up in a bullying incident or said something inappropriate online. I mean, we've all learned through trial and error and we've all, so when I started in computing, it was me and my machine. You made a mistake. The only one that knew about it was the machine. You make a mistake now and it's amplified tremendously. So everything takes on really a more important meaning. You just have to remember it's short-lived and it'll go away. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I know, as you know, my but, background... But don't, you find, don't you find yourself saying, oh, I didn't mean to send that to all of you, or I didn't realize you were all on the response. I mean, this is like something that requires understanding and mindfulness. And yet it's something we do so quickly. Well, absolutely. And I think that's actually part of what I described in my dissertation of sort of unconscious use of technology and unconscious presence, where we do things in such an automated way that we don't even think about hitting the send button and then realizing afterwards that it was copied to the entire company or to the yeah. entire group or things like that, that, that uh, have much bigger consequences than we really recognize at first. And so there's one side of it from the user perspective, but my work now is really looking at how do we design things in a way that we're using behavior science to create better things that are not manipulating in a bad way, but are manipulating us to have better behaviors rather than manipulating us to just become addicted to the devices or addicted to a game and the ethics of using behavior science in that way. And I think, you know, it's sort of putting in, for example, like with now with Gmail, when you send something, it gives you the opportunity to undo. That's a great way to sort of provide a second check. Right. Of like, did you mean to send that? Oh, yes, you have, you know, five seconds to fix. So I think that there's, you know, we're getting there. We're getting there. I mean, it sort of goes against some of our natural grain, I think, because we're all button pushers. You know, we, we delight if you just walk up to a vending machine or a cash machine or a robotic coffee dispenser. You just start pushing things and you will wind up with a latte instead of a mochaccino, you know, on these new, you know, the automated vending machines. Actually, for me, it's a great place to practice like phone buying, yeah, like when you pay with your phone because nobody's there yelling at you. And, you know, when, you know, when, when Starbucks first started taking mobile payments, I mean, I remember sitting there going, oh, my God, these people are behind me. I'm going to walk up with Samsung Pay. They've got Apple Pay. I'm going to swipe the wrong thing. Everybody's going to be mad at me. So I found vending machines, unattended things, were a really good way to create that skill. And I mean, look, there are bank branches everywhere, and none of them teach you online skills, like the skills that you could do so you're not taking out $10,000 when you're meant to take out $1,000. You know, banks should be doing so much more in the financial world to make the process, uh, to bring us all into the digital age, because it turns out it's more efficient for them, it's less fraud, it's more efficient for us. You know, the reporting time to an accident is so much faster, and yet, they just assume we're just going to go online and bank. Yeah. And that's where, where you're talking about with this un- understanding a user's proclivities and where they're going to mess up and sort of thinking for them is, is amazing. And it's, it's funny. I mean, the voice guys are getting pretty good at it. Like 
you know, the early voice, you just had to be so precise in the exact words you said. And you can hear over time now, you can ask a complicated question. You can say, no, I didn't mean for you to set the alarm for six o'clock. Do it for seven. You know, you can actually start to talk in natural language. So I think the user interface and the most exciting thing about user interfaces are that people of all talents are involved. Behavioral scientists, anthropologists, drama students. I mean, it is such a human thing that you're trying to capture in in a machine thing. And it's going to take a collaboration that never had to exist in computing before. Absolutely. And I personally think that's a beautiful thing. And, and you and I have had conversations before about sort of this is all still just in its infancy and sort of where's it going to go in a way that it's kind of like, you know, when you send out that first rocket and you're not necessarily sending it to anywhere, but you're just testing whether a rocket works. And so a lot of the devices and the tools that are being developed are really just shooting out a rocket into nowhere and see what happens and whether people will understand it. And so for those first smartwatches that we were looking at even five years ago, and I just, you know, sort of roll my eyes in the back of my head thinking, oh my God, these are developed by engineers that really, the only people that are ever going to wear them are other super geeky engineers that don't really care about how it looks and feels on their body and how it integrates with their lives or their work. But wow, isn't it a cool device? I'm wearing a computer strapped onto my wrist. Well, and then you start to think about the flip side, the data that everybody's collected because of the thing you wear on your wrist is it's forced us to change what it means to be a private person. And, you know, and it's fine if everything is normal about you, but if you have an existing health condition and you're monitoring it and people can now say, I don't want you in this job for this reason. I mean, we're starting to, so it's, yes, it's the user interface, but it's also the bias in the algorithms and in the information that we're gathering that can change things. It's very funny. I am here in Las Vegas at shop.org, which is the retail thing. And I keep saying, oh my God, what if I just want to go to the store and buy milk? Do, do I have to have an experience? I mean, do I have to, <laughs> do I, do I have to have my refrigerator anticipate that I've wanted the milk, which is where we're, we're getting to now with the internet of things where not just you talking to your machine, but your machines talking to each other and then to the rest of the world, it's going to get very, very weird. And, you know, on the bright side, it's going to save us all time and give us more time to do something. I'm not sure what, but on the, on the, I've never seen more smart people spend their time thinking about shopping than in this place right now. Well, I mean, on the shopping side, I think it's the same way, you know, in any of these things that are using AI to help perceive and to think ahead of what you might want based on your tendencies, it sort of filters out those things that you might want to try that you never would have thought of trying before that might actually be your next favorite food or your next favorite thing, or they might create these biases. I had this wonderful woman who is an old friend of mine. Uh, Claudia Gonzalez Edelman, who is, she 
started a whole organization called We Are All Human, which really it, it looks at these these cultural biases and these ethnic biases that are created by the filters of the information that we get. And sort of we like all the things that are similar to us, so we don't get any of the stuff that's not similar no. to us. And the same thing happens with food. And the same yeah. thing happens with and technologies politics. and politics. And politics. Yeah, so we've we've created, you know, a, a narrow cast of who we are rather than somebody that's open. And, and, and AI has helped perfect that. On the other hand, it's still pretty immature in that the fact that I bought, you know, I'd love to say to Google, really, I bought that rug like six months ago. Why do you keep asking me about this rug? Or, you know, but that awareness you talk about when, when I get a note from Google saying uh, things to do in Las Vegas, and I haven't even thought about going to Las Vegas yet, you know, and they have beat me to the punch. It's kind of frightening that there's so much that they know about both my past, but my anticipated purchases, my anticipated travels, my anticipated goals. You know, they know how, many, how much sleep I want to get, how many steps I want to take. And so when I'm reminded of that, and I think all of us after this last year will never look at an ad on anything the same way again, you know, after the elections and we've develop a radar. I think our kids are probably even better at it. It's just sniffing out a fake from the truth. Uh, but the amount of fakery, and then you just start to ignore it. So for example, for the last four days, every time I do anything on my computer, I get this voice that tells me, this is Microsoft, and you have done something really bad, and you've got to call us immediately and tell us things. And just habitually, I just shut it off. I know it's a fake. I've looked at the URL. I know the, the, the voice is a fake. And yet, what if it is real someday? You know, so it's sort of like the fire in the theater thing. Yeah. So we become numb, I think, numb to all this information, numb to wrong information. And so what can developers do to, to help that? Yeah, and I think in a way it comes back to the mindfulness piece of building a self-awareness of not letting ourselves become numb and sort of, you know, learning yeah. how to respond to those things that may be triggering us or maybe creating a reaction. I mean, if you're if you're so used to people shouting fire 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 in the in the theater and nothing's happening, but if your sensory system senses smoke, then all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute, that actually means fire, rather right. than just somebody saying fire, fire, fire. Um, so I think, you know, part of that is is helping attune people's uh, self-awareness of their responses to things so that they don't become numb, but they also build a sharper awareness of when they are you know, sort of becoming biased or really only going by one path or, or, and maybe being a little bit adventurous sometimes to try something that's totally out of your box or following someone that's from a completely different political belief system from you just to try to get an understanding of, you know, yeah. why. Yeah. Don't we wish that happened? And actually, I think the reverse happened. You know, I know on Facebook, you know, people just pare down their friends to reflect their belief systems. And it's so in many ways, the thing that we built to make us all one big world community has actually fractured us a bit. And that's where we find ourselves at this odd juncture. And I can't say I have all the answers, but I can say I know it's constantly exciting. And I know that 
the people who are creating algorithms now are really trying to eliminate the bias. I mean, right from the very beginning, people who are creating uh, sensors that sense everything about you are really trying to put it, do you want to share this publicly? Do you want this to be on your own? This is precisely what we'll do with your data. And so I think, you know, steps are being taken and by far, I mean, the good so outweighs the bad. I mean, I haven't, you know, lost my car. We we park on the streets of New York and I haven't lost my car since that find my car app, you know, came into being. It's GPS. So everything that we started doing in computing in early days from database things has become so much easier. And the bar to entry has become so much lower that I can create a database. You can create a database. We can create, I can find my car knowing that it's triangulated and And interestingly enough, so we fall on the, you know, it's like the mapping thing. So we get complacent. You you know, I could be in Richmond, California instead of Richmond, Virginia. But if Google Maps tells me to do it, I will do it. Um, my, my, My fun example is I often keep maps on walk. And then I just get in the car and I'm driving and go, oh, my God, I haven't seen a highway and I'm driving on little streets and I never took it <laughs> off walk, you know? So why is it taking me 10 hours? To, to, You're taking um, the scenic view. <laughs> scenic right. So it, it, it is so funny, the things. And then when things don't work, you know, for those, anybody who's in that sandwich generation where you're taking care of aging parents and you depend on technology to help locate them, well, all they have to do is be indoors instead of out or outdoors instead of in or the false positives that you get are annoying to them. And, you know, the cultural problems that come, older people who don't want to report the fact that they fell because they know that you'll take action and say they can't live alone anymore. So even though they're wearing this band, they will not notify you when they need you. So the social actions that we've developed around all these technologies are just Sometimes I call it like Lake Wobegon on the old Prairie Home Companion, you know, where all the people are good looking and happy. Like you seldom go on to Facebook and hear somebody just, I'm sad. <laughs> you know, it's, oh, I had a great day today. This is what I ate. This is where I'm traveling. And you're sitting there, oh, am I such a loser? <laughs> but I, I do think that, you know, I mean, if you look back to, you know, 10 years ago, even, and and I look, you know, 12 years ago, I was in the process of developing this social search site for professional women to share resources. And it was, we were, it was around the same time that Facebook was launching more outside of the college community. And the response that I got was, wow, really cool idea, but you're not going to get women to share information. And, and this was back in the day when people said, don't ever post your pictures of your children online and this and that. I mean, people start baby pages yeah. for their babies before they're even born now. And, and I, know. I mean, the thing is, but don't the, you think some of them are going to wind up in therapy forever? I, but, I, I, actually, I actually, sure, but as if they wouldn't be, anyway. I mean, is it technology someone, that did that or is it their parents? Like I said, I, I think technology amplifies these things that, you know, if you have a parent that's an oversharer or if you have a parent that's a helicopter parent or, you know, because, I mean, I see it in college kids now, they're literally texting their parents from the guidance counselor's office saying, do you think I should take this class or this class? Or I have a big paper due. Do you think you'd come here this weekend? So the amount of immediacy to all these bad behaviors, you know, I had to call my parents Sunday nights and collect as a fake 
I never talked to them and let them know I was alive. Now your moments are so shared that, and so immediate. And so I tell parents, you know, if your kid writes from college that they're having the worst day, you will fret about it for 24 hours and they'll be done in 10 minutes, you know? <laughs> so you really sort of have to pick up. It's all about knowing somebody, knowing somebody's communication styles. And that's why I think it's a particularly good time to be a woman in tech also, because these were sort of our skills to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can say it's sexist to say that. I think women are good collaborators. I think they have social empathy. I think they can sense how to get to consensus. And those skills now are so important to know whether somebody's really in distress or they're just having a bad moment, to know if somebody's a fake or not. And these are digital skills that we're honing to a new degree. You know, just like when our brains were smaller until language and then our brains got bigger and now our brains are having to learn to cope with this digital world and we'll probably offload it to a robot at some point. But um. Yeah, I do think though that, I mean, as to your point about amplifying, I grew up going to boarding school and I would call in every Sunday night and it was a collect call because back then that was the way you call from the payphone in the dorm. Right. And it was a weekly call with my mother and I would offload all the things that had happened that week and I was miserable and I'd get off the phone and I'd feel fine because <laughs> I had dumped it all and my mother would suffer for that entire week. She laughs about it now because she says, oh, you know, I would for days I'd be struggling with, you know, everything you did. And I knew intellectually that you just needed to dump it, but it just, it weighed on me. And I don't think that that's necessarily any different than what's happening now. It's just that it's amplified. It happens more. And, you know, you get the, you get the opposite. You get the kid that just says, oh, everything's fine. It's all wonderful. And they get off the phone and then they, then they go and collapse or they go do something stupid. So I, I don't necessarily see it as that human behavior has changed. It's just that the way that we express it is different. The way that we express it, the the speed of it, I, you know, I think is the thing that has has changed so much. And because you had to, you know, you sort of had to save it up for a week, think about it. I mean, now it's just, you know, I hate you. <laughs> I, I never want to see you again. And it's sort of like top of mind. And you're right that pulling back your email is a really good thing. And I think people have honed email skills. Like I'm going to sit on it overnight before I hit send, or I'm going to look at the where this whole list is going to, and I'm going to see if somebody shouldn't be on this list, or I'm going to send a card as a sympathy card, not an email. You know, So people are making decisions now because of a new media about how they're going to act which is like crazy. Um, It's a learning. And unfortunately, I don't think it's learned in schools. I think it's learned in the school of experience. And I don't think there's much of a curriculum. And, And it's the same way I think kids are learning about jobs of the future. I mean, it's not like you went to school and you learned, you could be a lawyer, you could be a doctor, you could be a nurse. There were a finite set of choices. And now the choice is as unlimited as your imagination. Absolutely. And to that end, have you seen, I'm sure because you've got so much got your ear to the ground, particularly in sort of how technology is impacting different industries. Where have you seen sort of the biggest shift in terms of new opportunities for growth for young people who are coming into the industry or coming into the workplace? Where do you see the biggest shift there? So on the on the positive side, the shift I see is that work is more of 
a marriage between somebody looking for work and somebody hiring than ever before. That it is a negotiation that organizations are flatter and less hierarchical so that you can actually have some input, at least the good ones are. As a young person, your opinion is valued, your texting skills are valued. They're skills that you bring to that organization from day one. On the downside, I'm not such a believer in the gig economy. I think that benefits and the, you know, that health benefits work, you know, comfortable wages have been sort of not part of the vocabulary. So you have this whole other set of workers who are just struggling to make it as a gig worker and doing four and five jobs and getting paid very little because there's no regulation about benefits or minimum pay. And so that's sort of the downside. I think that I'm convinced the best training we can do is this sort of the classical education that lets you be a problem solver and then lets you see the opportunity. So every day, you know, in any, it, it's a different frame of reference to say, I see a problem and I can do this. My checkout line in, in, into the hotel was long. What could I, what business could I start to make that process better? I saw one yesterday, somebody starting a, a co-op collective where your co-op fees and buildings could be cheaper. So I'm amazed every day at the ingenuity that I see to tackle basic problems, like never putting in a piece of IKEA furniture together by yourself again because of TaskRabbit. So I, I, and it amazes me, but I hope that at the same time we don't forget our, our, our humanness and there was something sort of lovely about knowing you'd be in a job for a couple of years and your medical and dental would be paid for and that a perk wasn't a ping pong or foosball table. It was something more tangible that let you have a better quality of life. And, you know, and then I think there's so many ways to get there now. I mean, there are accelerators, there are incubators, there are coding schools. So, you know, to me, fundamentally, no matter what you do, you can be a ballerina, but I think you should learn how to code at least enough to have a conversation about how you're going to choreograph that dance. I think coding, speaking that language of thinking in and or not, but if, is just going to help you no matter what. So mm. I'm thrilled to see schools incorporating more and more of that and, and more kids taking taking that up. Yeah, I, t I totally agree. I was really excited to see that the University of Nebraska in Lincoln has just started this new program that's really, it's sort of a, a cross, a crossover program that's integrating science and technology and the arts. And it's actually a, a master's in fine arts, but it's integrating all of those different pieces. And when we start seeing more of these, you know, cross disciplinary programs that really make you understand that, you know, the systems perspective of things. And I, yeah. I, I think that that's so important because the world is a big place and we're all yeah. global citizens, whether you like it or not, whether you like your neighbor or not, whether you like your neighbor here or the other side of the planet, you're still cohabitating on the same, on the, the same yeah. planet. So. Yeah. And the other part of that is that, I mean, even, you know, a chef in a restaurant, a business owner, they understand viscerally now that, People are hungry for authenticity, experience. So you bring in a little AR about where your wine came from, or you bring in, you know, some sort of scavenger hunt to your product. People enjoy. 
people are starved for experiences, I think, in part because we sit so much in front of our devices. And so when the opportunity comes to just do the ordinary in a fun way, people Look at look at the outdoor business. My, my son actually runs glamping, uh, the glamping trips, the outdoor camping oh, things. And, and you know, this is just people hungry for the. And before that, he was tough mutters. So it's this idea that people are experience starved and really want to try something different, to feel different. Because you're right. When you sit in front of a computer doing, you know, input, whether it's voice or typing, it's this one set of, of body uh, sort of homeostasis and to get your adrenaline going and to get your endorphins going, you need a different um, kind of stimulation. And technology can do some of that, but not all of that. So so speaking of that and sort of, the, you know, these hybrid situations. So when I was at South by Southwest the, last year, I've never seen so many scavenger hunt type, you know, sort of all of these mixed experiential things where you're being sent all around trying to integrate yeah. with or to engage with brands in a different way. And you're very involved in CES, but in other large conferences as well. Are you guys looking at some new fun ways to get people to move and to be more integrated into the experience of being there? So much so that I think we're going to be a parody of ourselves soon. <laughs> you know, our company, we were one of the first to do, you know, fashion shows. So to bring out technology and to show it to people, we would do fashion shows. Well, now we do robot fashion shows. They're called Robots on the Runway. And it is a, people love it. They take selfies with the robots. They learn a little bit about the robots. So I think we do, um, uh, this year we'll have an ICO slugfest, which is presenting ICOs and the audience votes on them. We do the last gadget standing. So I personally believe people learn a lot when they're having fun. The problem is everybody wants that same noise. And when that same noise is happening, you know, if you've gone through our fitness area at CES, you'll see people jumping on trampolines, exercising on bicycles, hanging from silks from the ceiling. And it's kind of sensory overload. So what sticks with you after all that is really the question. So you've had a really good time. And the branding thing, I actually ask people a lot. So I'll, I'll say, my, my niece just went to a Refinery29 house. She went through all these rooms. She loved it. And I said, so who were the sponsors? Who built these rooms? She couldn't name a one. Mm. So I think the trick for brands is to do something where you're, you are getting something out of it that is in keeping with your brand, not just to do it because it's there. It's tricky. It's tricky to do. And so sometimes we'll start with the titles. Like we have a title called how to think like a block trepreneur. I still don't know exactly what that is, but it will, it will come to me in our digital health. We found that patient stories reverberate so much better than the guy who made the product. So we do a session called how technology saved my life where the five technologies are presented through the patients. Mm. And so I think those things stick. And I think they do remember the brand name, but uh, it's me about branding right now, since people are spending all this ridiculous amounts of money and they're not getting remembered for their brands after they create these experience. What if, and I'm seeing it a lot, 
they do something socially good. So I'm seeing companies getting behind cook stove initiatives in somewhere or, or drones for emergency energy or, um, or emergency medicine or helping Puerto Rico. And if you imagine if all the money that was spent in advertising was spent doing something good. <laughs> so this idea intrigues me very much lately that brands can stand for something. And I think Nike uh, showed that the other day. Where, Absolutely. Um, where, where, and I think it was a brave move and it could have really, and you know, so they probably lost a couple of people who burnt their Nikes and, but that's okay. They didn't want to talk to them. So I think brands are going to figure out how to target more and do something more meaningful for fewer people than blanket everybody and hope something sticks. I would love to see more of that happening. And I was today, I was just watching the, uh, the Apple announcement and they were talking about sort of their, their whole environmental policy and the, you know, the returning of the phones and the devices. And I think, you know, I hope we're going to see more and more of that where they're going to take a strong stance. Companies are going to set good examples and they're going to take a, take a strong stance and, and really count on their, their branding being uh, based yeah. on doing social good. Um, yeah, I think to your point, and it's funny, I, I think I may have stolen your line. So I just did my predictions for Elle magazine, where I write a piece this time of year. And I did predict that this would be a year when uh, wellness and well-being was going to figure heavily into device manufacturers and, and, and some of the new things that we're doing, but also that this was going to be the year of slower computing, slow computing, like slow cooking, that yes. we were just going to not rush so fast that if Mark Zuckerberg said, break things and break them fast, or what, what did he say? You know, build things and break them. Yep. Um, it's now going to be, you know, just a little more thoughtful. And Google's, uh, you know, do no evil is going to be do no evil. And I really mean it this time because I'm going to think it through, <laughs> you know. So I think it's the maturation of an industry that was all about speed and all about doing more and doing more and doing more and this new feature and that new feature. And now I think you're going to see a slight shift to the conversations that have to go happen around these things. Well, I certainly hope so. And I do see that trend and I hope it continues. And I really, I, I appreciate your being an advocate for that and speaking out about it and, and uh, supporting my work. It's been, it's been really fun sort of watching your path and being alongside on that. So thank yeah. you so well, much. For they your are work. aligned and you are, your work gets finer and more refined. So good for you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And before we go, I want to make sure that our listeners can find you and your work and some of the great events that you're, you're working on. Is there anything coming up that they, that you would like to share with our audience? Yeah, so right now we're in CES mode where we produce about 15 different events as CES partners. We're very proud of that relationship. And you can go to livingindigitaltimes.com and you can see all of the various events that we do there. That's probably the best place to start. And then it goes on to what we write and where we are. So it's probably the best single place you can go. 
Great. And we will make sure that we will put that in the show notes so folks can find you. So don't worry if you are driving right now listening to this podcast, please do not try to write it down. It will be available for you on the show notes, wherever the show notes can be found from where you're listening. Robin, I just want to once again, thank you for joining me today and for sharing your work and just for the work that you're doing and for being there for all of us in the industry. It's, uh, you've been a guiding light and we very much appreciate it. Oh, gee, I'm blushing if you could see me. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you. And for all of those of you out there, digital selfers, thank you so much for joining us today. And we look forward to speaking with you again next week. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. And until then, bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.